0: So good morning! Thank you all for uh, for coming out today. Uh, As Mike mentioned, my name is Brad Willock. Um, Some of you I know, which is fabulous, and some of you uh, I do not, and I hope to meet over the next couple of weeks. Um, I am one of the pastors at Redeeming Grace Church. It's awesome! Thanks for the announcement. That's really cool. Um, uh, so for those of you who probably remember, um, Trav Newman is also one of the pastors with us. So. Uh, redeeming Grace, we send our love to uh, to this church uh, in gratitude now for, for these few years of uh, service we've had. They win. They're louder than I am. Uh, I, I am accompanied by my, my lovely wife, Rebecca. She's really spoiled. This is a rare opportunity for her to uh, actually attend a church service without somebody like pulling on her pants leg. Uh, so if you, uh, if you get a chance to talk to Rebecca, she's hiding back there. Uh, I want to thank Albert and Mike and the leadership of the church, uh, for inviting me back again. Um, it is, uh, it is always good to come and serve you all, but it's, uh, particularly a privilege to do this and, uh, give Albert a little bit of a break. So a couple housekeeping items since I'll be with you for a couple of weeks. Um, there is a handout, uh, there's a final exam, it's written, it's scored, it'll show up on your SATs. Um, if you're at home, I think you can get a copy of that as well. Uh, that's going to be our ally to not going insane during my teaching. Um, when, whenever a pastor usually says, you know, all right, well, we're going to look at this passage over here, flip to that, I was always last, and that always made me feel really bad. So I'm not going to do that to you. Any passage I referenced today is going to be in your handout. I'm going to read it to you. You can look it up later. It'll be there for you. Um, There are resources on the back uh, that are resources that have served me in preparing this. They have served uh, our church as we've gone along. So there are two books on there that I would highly commend to you. There's a third book, uh, Christ-Centered Exposition, that's listed on there as well. Uh, All of these, very, very good books, uh, very readable books. Um, The ones of Don Carson, don't let that scare you. Um, it's, It's very readable. It's very easy to understand and will help you. Uh, over the next three weeks, we will cover a handful of passages in Philippians. Uh, I can't cover all of Philippians in three weeks. Uh, these guys have done a lot of work, and they have some really good stuff that will help serve you. Last, uh, it is warm, thankful for the breeze. Uh, if you need to get up in the middle to get a drink, get out, just go. It's okay. It's totally fine. I won't take it personal. Um, and if you're home, th- the same thing applies to you. Just make sure you mute us before you go to the bathroom. All right. That's enough of administration. Uh, let me pray, and then let's, uh, let's dive into the book of Philippians. Heavenly Father, you are a good God, and you have preserved your good word for us for centuries now, that we may stand here today before you, uh, humbled by your kindness, that you would preserve a text for the purposes of us knowing you better. So this morning, Lord, I pray for the Spirit to come and help us know you better through your word, You have given us encouragement, you have given us insight, Uh, and Father, I pray the Spirit this morning would be with us as each person hears the word and understands how you would apply it to their heart. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, when Albert asked me to come, uh, I said, hey, you know, what are you looking for? And Albert was very gracious. He said, what do you have? It's like, okay, well, that's cool. Um, Redeeming Grace just did uh, the book of Philippians. Philippians is a very different kind of letter to a very different kind of people. Now, most of Paul's letters are pretty hard-hitting. I mean, quite frankly, I think if he ever had gotten back to Corinth, I think he would have shown up with a mallet in hand, and I think the Corinthians would have been in big trouble. Um, But Philippians is probably Paul's most gentle letter. Uh, It's a very short book. Uh, It's only four chapters, and he mentions joy some 15 times. The book is just overflowing with encouragement, and even in the places where Paul does correct them, he's, he's still winsome, if not direct. So as we're looking at where we're here right now, uh, for what would serve our church and what I hope will serve your church over for the next few weeks, finding joy in these crazy, uncertain times seemed to be a pretty good place to start. I say start because that's where Paul starts, but it's not where he ends, and it's not where we will end. I'm going to move that down a little bit. Now, what is the book about? Some have suggested that the Book of Philippians is the equivalent of a missionary thank you letter, Paul writing to this small church who has sent him a gift in prison in Rome, expressing his gratitude and thankfulness for their donation. But he goes so much further. Along the way, Paul seeks to accomplish another purpose that I think will be most excellent for us to consider. Now, Matthew Harmon is a professor of New Testament at Grace College, and he summarizes Paul's agenda as follows. To call for the Philippians to live joyfully as a citizen of God's kingdom in a manner worthy of the gospel, even in the face of internal and external pressures. And that's us, right? We're living in unprecedented times. We have pressures in the home, pressures at work, pressures from all the events swirling around us. But in the midst of this, our position before God has not changed. We are still his. And so in the middle of this swirl, how do we learn from Paul what joy looks like, joy rooted in the gospel, with everything going on out there? Paul, writing from house arrest, points them to joy found only in Christ. That is what Paul desires for the Philippians, and this is what my desire is for all of you, joy rooted in Jesus Christ. And so today, as we launch off on this adventure, I am very excited to start this small book series with you. This one, perhaps more than others, uh, I've gotten to share with you, because I need this message as much as you do. I need to be reminded that despite all the crazy around me, and even if things do indeed get worse for us, I can still experience joy. Joy found only by grace, and grace only received by day by day, hour by hour, perhaps moment by moment, reflection on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What Paul goes to repeatedly in this book calls about being in Christ. Now another major theme of this book is unity. The idea of being in Christ is not lived out in isolation. In fact, we're all here together this morning looking to grow in Christ together. And it's this togetherness, this unity, this fellowship that we'll home in on today. Now, fellowship is a very funny word. It's definitely not a new word, but the Christian world has claimed it for our own. Now, if I do breakfast with a non-believer, then we call it a meeting. But if I do the same conversation over the same ham and eggs, but I do it with a brother or sister in Christ— then all of a sudden this conversation is transported to a wonderful world of pixie dust and unicorns and we have fellowship, okay? I poke a bit fun of the Christian language, but there is indeed something truly different when Christians come together. This, this fellowship, at least the original word for it, comes out of the Greek word koinonia that will be in our passage today. My favorite Greek English dictionary defines this as a close association involving mutual interests and sharing. Associations, almost by definition, are a group of people with some commonality. Either it's around a hobby, a trade, an event, but some fellowships are different. Now, I'm a little bit of a Tolkien fan. If Jess Schellenberger was here, she'd give me an amen for that. And I really enjoy what he's done in his Lord of the Rings series. The first of those highlights this rather unusual gathering of people. Hobbits, dwarves, men, elves, and a wizard. And on the surface, these folks would appear to have absolutely nothing in common. Uh, In fact, they would have some pretty sharp differences. But as the story progresses, we find that they indeed have very much in common, and it's this commonality that draws them together. Apply this here to the church that Paul is writing to in Philippi that we first met when we read in Acts 16. You have a wealthy, influential businesswoman, You have a former demon-possessed, now unemployed peasant girl, and you have a prison guard who is probably now also unemployed because he lost a bunch of people. Before Acts 16, these people had nothing in common. But Paul has preached the gospel to them. God has opened their hearts to the redemptive message, and now these unrelated people are related in a special bond. In Christ, they are now related they and we are now partakers of the same life and partners in the same mission. So this morning, as we look at this section of Paul's letter to the Philippian church, we will hear more about this bond, this, this fellowship or this partnership. We will see that Paul's connection to the Philippians is rooted in what they have in common in Christ. Like the fellowship of the ring, Paul has entered into the fellowship with the Philippians. And we'll see four markers, four Shared features, if you will, that we share with them and we share with each other. So, assuming the wind has not taken my book away, let's read now from Philippians. I'm going to start reading in the very beginning of verse 1, and we're going to focus today in Philippians on verses 3 through 8. This is the Word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, Who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you always making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is God's word. So as we start to look in this passage, we look in verses three and four, we see our very first marker. Point number one in your handout, and if you're following along, is fellowship marked by a common plea. Fellowship marked by a common plea. Verses three to six are actually one big Paul-like run-on sentence. It's very much, this is, this is less like a letter, and you can think of this more as a speech, almost like Paul dictated this, and somebody wrote it down just like he was talking, because he knew on the other end somebody was going to speak this out to the church, and they were going to hear it like it was Paul standing before them speaking. So after his greeting in verses 1 and 2, Paul now begins his speech. And what we first observe is repetition. All, always, and all. Remembrance, prayer, and prayer. Paul is beginning his speech quite eloquently by connecting with his readers on a very emotional level. J.W. Marshall reminds us that people then, like us today, tended to believe people more than they believed arguments. Paul here is a real person. He's appealing to their shared God with such repetition as to make it undisputable how much he did indeed care for them. You must know that in literature at the time, a greeting like this did not happen. Uh, You didn't start a letter by thanking God, and you definitely didn't start a letter with gratitude for the people for whom you were writing. Paul is doing something very, very Christian here. He's doing both thanking and thanking God for people, and he's doing it over and over again. Now, the sentence structure here is quite ambiguous. Most of the smart guys translate it just like we find it in our Bible here this morning. Paul is grateful for them, and he remembers them. But the Greek is very squishy. So others have read this to say Paul is grateful for when they remember him. So whether you want to read this, as Paul is grateful for them, or they are grateful for him, it is clear there is a relationship it is a mutual or two-way relationship, and that this relationship is strong. How strong? Paul tells us, with joy. Now, you must know, Paul cannot stop talking about joy when he writes to this dear church. I've put these in your handout, but through this entire letter, he goes back to the theme of joy over and over again. In verse, We find it the first time today in verse 4, he prays with joy. In verse 18, he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. 25, that we will remain living on earth for the Philippians, joy in the faith. And on and on in this letter. One commentator concluded that joy is so characteristic of Paul's vision of the Christian life that one can say that a joyless Christian makes no more sense than a waterless ocean. There's a common plea before God, either from Paul for them or from them for Paul, likely both. The relationship, the ground on which Paul will build the rest of this letter, is a joy-filled petition to the Lord. Their fellowship is marked by a common plea, joy in Christ. Now, point number two, their fellowship is marked by a common commitment. If verse 3 is what Paul is grateful for and verse 4 is how he demonstrates his gratitude, then verse 5 is why he's grateful. Because of their partnership in the gospel. Paul's reason for gratitude towards God with joy for the Philippians is their partnership in the gospel. This partnership, this is our koinonia word. And we have layers of meaning here that we need to unwrap because I think this will change our purpose for what we do in those breakfasts. On one level, this is indeed a gathering of people. Sure, that is kind of the fellowship that we were expecting. Their church is a group. Paul, at least in spirit, is with that group. And that's a fellowship, Christians being together. But that's not the whole story. You see, this word also carries commercial or like business overtones. We find written in one Roman law code this example. They found that Victor and Osianus had agreed that monuments should be erected with the exertions and skill of Ossianus on land purchased with Victor's money. They would then be sold. Victor would recover his money with the addition of an agreed sum, and Osianus would get the rest in recognition of the hard work he had put into the partnership, the koinonia. So this is not merely a group of people, but a group of people linked in a common pursuit. If you and I were to go into business together we would also be in koinonia. Our personal and financial commitments would be inextricably linked, and we would be locked together in this arrangement. Now, Paul's pursuit with the Philippians and ours with each other is not only a gathering. It is not only corporate or business-like, but is also qualified one step further by the point or the goal of the gathering. And Paul is clear here that the common commitment they share is, in the gospel. In Christ, we are now locked arms with a common commitment, one that is radically different. Remember our friend Matthew Harmon? He's back with another quote for us. He writes to this end, in a day when the term fellowship is loosely applied to any time believers gather together for any purpose, it's essential to regain the biblical understanding of fellowship. What distinguishes truly biblical fellowship from simple shared interests and experiences among non-Christians is the gospel-centered nature of biblical fellowship. So what are the markers, then, of this common commitment? Well, here are a few, and I've listed these in your handout. We have common commitment in sharing the gospel. We have a common commitment in Christian giving, both to each other and to the church for its advancement. We have a common suffering for Christ, bearing one another's burdens and calling attention to observe patterns of sin. Paul extends this idea even further in Second Corinthians. He says, "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership there's our word again has righteousness with lawlessness and what fellowship has light with darkness. The focus of these times together should be radically Christ-focused and radically different than what unbelievers experience in their gatherings. Paul tells the Thessalonians how dear they are to him, that they shared even their very lives. That is the extent, the reach, the breadth, the depth of what Christian fellowship should be. In the gospel, we are personally changed, but that personal change is not the end. You see, faith is not terminal at you. No, you are redeemed to be part of something bigger, the fellowship, the partnership. Locked together in this common commitment with the other believers to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, we share a common plea, we share a common commitment. But how do we do this? Right? Life is messy. What about when things get hard? Um, what about, for example, if we were locked in our homes for month on end without fellowship with anybody else? It could happen, right? Um, or heaven forbid, what if we actually got to the end of Netflix? Paul has you covered. Point number three is fellowship marked by a common belief. Common belief. Now, Philippians might be one of the most coffee-mugged books of the whole Bible. There are so many passages in this short book that have ended up on walls, Bible verses, Bibles, and everywhere else. And if I had to tell you to pick one and hang on to it, verse six here is the one I would tell you to hang on to. Paul writes, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now let's pause and dwell here for quite a few moments. There are facts, the facts here are clearly stated, but there are implications that are not stated, and these are what are so incredibly precious to us. Here are the facts. In just this short verse, Paul is confident. God has redeemed the Philippians in justification. God will continue what he started in sanctification, and God will complete what he started in glorification, Those are the raw facts of the matter and perhaps the simplest definition of what a Christian is. We are justified, sanctified, glorified, all a work of God. But the implications of that are precious to us. What is Paul's source of confidence? It's God, the immutable, unchangeable, loving God of the universe which I'd have to say is a pretty good place to put your trust if you're going to pick something. God redeems through justification. God initiated, because we never would or could, God initiated the action in us to remove our rejection and opposition to him and replace it with instead love and affection for him. He removed the penalty of death that we deserve for our rebellion, and he took those charges and he put them in Christ's folder, And he took all of Christ's sinless perfection and he put it in our folder as an exchange. Do you get that as a picture? God initiated the action to declare us just or right with him. But while the penalty of sin is gone, the presence surely remains. We still struggle. We still wrestle. We still fail more often than we would probably like to admit. But the shame we feel in that struggle Is in misplaced hope. It's misplaced because we feel like we can do it ourselves. Now, where was Paul's confidence? You remember he's already said his confidence is not in himself, it's in God. He tells the Galatians, quite glibly, are you foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you think that somehow now After God doing the work of saving you, somehow now it's your job to do all the rest by yourself. No, no, dear one, our confidence remains in God, for he will continue what he has started. Now, part of being God is that nothing outside of you can stop your plans. My plans get changed all the time by things outside of me. You just be around kids for five minutes and your plans will change. See, there are no forces outside of God's control. So the work that he started in you, he will continue. Jesus told the disciples that after he died, he would send the spirit. Why? To help us carry out what we could not. Our own flesh, our own willpower is not going to increasingly transform us into the image of Christ. No, we engage with a new heart and a new mind that he has given us. And he will give the growth. And Paul's confidence in God extends all the way to the end. If nothing can thwart God, if nothing can change his plans, then we can be confident that we'll be there for the day of Christ, the big finish, the grand finale, if you will, when Jesus comes back again to collect all that are his and put an end to sin and suffering. Loved ones, soak your soul in this. Individually, this should be life-changing life changing to hear, and it may take a lifetime to grasp. If you're a Christian, then God has initiated a changed heart in you. He is still with you and has a place prepared for you. There is a lifetime of hope and encouragement in this one verse. And if you aren't a Christian, then this verse is loaded with hope for you too. Deep down, you know that you've got problems And that white-knuckling is not getting the job done for you. I have excellent news for you this morning. The God of the universe is well aware of your situation. He knows the crummy things that you've done, which would be a really bad thing if it weren't for verse 6. But verse 6 assures you that that same God can change you. He can begin a good work in you here today through faith in Jesus Christ. There is a lifetime of personal hope and encouragement in just this one verse. But the context here is fellowship. It's us individually and each Philippian, but it's also corporately, us together. Every koinonia, every fellowship, every connected group of believers was started by God. It is supported by God and it will be brought to glory by God. Now, certain temporal relationships will change. Some churches will close. Some people will move away. New people will come. Some people will get to go home to the Lord before we do. Good for them, bad for us. But the seat of our faith is not in the church or the people. It is God himself and his faithfulness above all else. So let's take up an example. Let's, let's look at this. How might this verse inform—we call them grace groups. I think you all call them care groups. How does this inform your small group participation? If partnership together is a form that God initiates and that God supports, then I tell you what, I want to be a part of that. My new heart wants to be where God is working. If God is committed to changing me, then might these other people be a tangible part of that? They're broken too, right? Perhaps God will use one of them— to help me. Or, or maybe, just maybe, he will use me to help one of them. Perhaps I can be called to work alongside with God to minister someone. A word of wisdom, encouragement, or hope. But you see, without a common belief, without the belief that God is the initiator and sustainer, then our fellowship turns inward. Something that verse 6 excludes. It turns into, well, am I doing enough for that person? Or or can that person do something for me? Or or my situation is without hope, so there's no point in sharing it. These are lies of Satan, every single one of them. The entirety of the Bible asserts again and again, God is faithful. It is right that Paul would have such a joy-filled attitude towards the Philippians, because their very existence, the very fact that they exist and they have been sustained, is from God. The basis of our leaning hard into the fellowship, into this partnership we have with each other in Christ, is not our desires, it's not our willpower. Remember from verse 5, the basis is the gospel. The foundation of our faith and its expression together is not what we will do, but what has already been done, and God's promise to be with us the entire way. And he is faithful, and he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Now, they shared a common plea, a common commitment, a common belief. And point number four, their fellowship was marked by a common experience. Now, it becomes evident then, if we have so much in common, that we would share in some ways a common experience. Just follow all the all statements of this passage, verse 3, verse 4, verse 7, verse 8. Paul can have these feelings about them because they are all partakers, partakers of grace, Members in Koinonia Fellowship have experienced the grace of God, acting like we just saw in verse six. All believers in Christ have experienced some form of regeneration. That's our testimony. Now, when I do membership interviews, one of the questions I ask is I ask people to tell me their testimony. And I have to tell you, in the simplest form, they're all identical. Don't ever think that your testimony is boring. Everyone is amazing, and it's But it's also the same as everyone else's you were a sinner god acted just like he said in verse 6 and now by his power you're changed that's a testimony at the very simplest level now some folks have really epic sin stories that turn into really epic god stories but in the end each one of us has a shared experience we were all once rebels of god and now we're all children of god and the outworking of that in our relationships our fellowships, our koinanias, is that we can enter into each other's circumstances with hope, hope rooted in God's continuing action. See here at the end of verse 7, Paul calls them partakers with him, both in his imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They were not physically in prison with Paul. They were thousands of miles away. But their shared experience in Christ means they can enter into Paul's suffering with hope not with answers. We don't have to enter into someone's suffering with answers. Remember verse 6, God has the answers. He is the one working in us. No, but we can still be co-partakers of grace in their circumstances. Through their prayers and financial gifts, the Philippians have tangibly demonstrated their co-participation, their partnership, and not merely in his imprisonment, for that, that isn't really why they sent the money, no, no, so much more for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is in jail, and he draws on this legal, this, this defense language. It says not that he would need to defend himself, but that he is there and they're supporting him in defense of the gospel. Now, in one sense, the gospel requires no defense. As we saw in verse 6, it's God initiating action from the beginning to end, and we can, he can surely stick up for himself way better than we can. But first, Peter reminds us that we're be, to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that we have. So how is Paul hope-filled? How can he declare this confident? He's in jail. That is not a hope-filled place. That is a hopeless place. But what makes the difference between the hopeless and the hope-filled is the fellowship that Paul experiences with the Philippians in Christ. Paul preaches a whole message to you on this if you read ahead to verses 19 to 26. I won't preach that one today, but I'll let the missionary Elizabeth Elliott punctuate the point when she writes The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Paul invokes an oath in verse 8 to testify to his truthfulness. It's almost unbelievable what he said. It's hard to believe that someone could have joy and hope sitting in a prison. It's a bit like if someone ever said to tell you the truth, which you know doesn't mean they normally lie to you. They say that for emphasis, right? They want you to get the point. Paul wants them to know the depth and the passion of his desire for them, how strong his hope remains because of them, and how he longs to be with them again. His hope, rooted yes in God, but manifest in his prayers towards God for them and their partnership. One wise commentator noted at this point, in this candid expression of affection for the Philippians, Paul reveals his great pastoral heart. No consumer model is at work here. These people are not statistics nor consumers of the apostle. He deeply cares for them. And the affection of Christ Jesus is the banner over everything we have in common. Now, at the end of the Lord of the Rings series, if you have not got to see the movies or read the books, Aragorn, part of the fellowship, is crowned king of Gondor, and the fellowship disbands to their home. Evil has been defeated at last, and a new era of peace begins. Well, our fellowship with King Jesus, we haven't quite gotten there yet. We are indeed a very strange bunch, but we share a common plea, a mutual love for one another, We can pray with joy for one another. We are often weak and we tire easily, but we share a common commitment. In the gospel, we can lock arms as brothers and sisters to advance the kingdom. We are helpless, but we are not hopeless. We share a common belief that the God of the universe can change us, does change us, and will sustain us. And our hope is not in ourselves and we share a common experience. Each of us, partakers of grace, can bear one another's burdens, enter into each other's joys and sorrows, encourage one another, and sacrifice for one another. What we have in common is far more than what divides us or holds us back. We can and must put the gospel first if we are to fellowship in the King. Can I conclude by praying for you all? Dear Heavenly Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters here this morning that they would experience the joy in Christ that you speak about in this passage. For the believers this morning, verse 6, should resound in their soul the kindness that you have had to reach down and change and transform them, to overcome their rebellion, their objection, and draw them to yourself and put a place for them at your table next to you. What incredible kindness, Lord. And for unbelievers who hear this at home or hear this morning, know that that same incredible kindness still applies to you. There is absolutely nothing you've done that gets you outside of the scope of verse six. There is nothing that can say, oh, I was so horribly terrible that you know God can't redeem me from that. That is not true. That is a lie. Don't listen to that lie. God desires all come to himself. And so this morning, if you are plucked in your soul that God is reaching out to you, I pray that you would reach back out to him in love and affection for him. Father, I pray that we would lean into each other. We would lean into each other in Christ, that we could build each other up to hold each other accountable and to press on as you will tell us later in philippians press on towards the goal of the upward call of christ jesus father increase our faith this morning increase our faith in you that not only did you start the work in us but that you remain present with us you are with us every step of the way you are here before we came this morning if we fought with our spouse in the car you are with us here this morning if we thought about grocery lists and you're going to be with us, Lord, this afternoon as we leave here. God, you will carry us to the end. What incredible kindness. Father, let us grow our trust and faith in you today. I pray all this in the matchless and enduring name of Jesus Christ.